Where we live isn't too far from Salem, Massachusetts, best known for those infamous witch trials. And so we visited Salem to check it out, to take a tour, that sort of thing. Close to Halloween, as I recall, the leaves all orange and yellow and red, crunching underfoot. This was many years ago, but what I remember most, what I've never been able to forget, is a painting we saw on a storefront window, larger than life, along one of the main streets in town. It was a painting of a man dressed in 17th century garb, his face angry, his arm extended, pointing an accusatory finger off to his left, and in the dialogue bubble above his head, a single word of accusation. Witch. But here's the thing. The artist had painted the man according to the stereotypical tropes of a witch. Green skin, a wicked expression. He is the witch, not whoever he's accusing. So, right there, in a single image, a profound idea. It's often the accusers who embody the very thing they accuse others of doing or being. The so-called evil in our midst often isn't in the person or people being pointed at. It's in the pointing, the accusing, the scapegoating. In the ancient world, a scapegoat was an actual goat onto which the community would ritually transfer their collective sin. That was the idea. And then the goat would be driven out into the wilderness, one creature carrying the weight of the whole. According to the Gospel of John, though the wider community doesn't realize it, Jesus steps into this role in his suffering and death. He's the scapegoat. And as we'll explore in the next episode, he thereby exposes scapegoating for what it is. But the story of the cross, and even the stories that lead up to the cross, they're also a kind of trap. And just like that painting in Salem, if we're not careful, it's a trap that can catch us unaware. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. The Gospel of John begins with a famous prologue. In the beginning was the Word, or logos in Greek, word, language, pattern of reason, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's version of the Christmas story. Jesus is the word, the logos, cosmic in scope, the pattern of reason in and through everything, the wisdom through which all things come into being. And this cosmic wisdom is born, becomes flesh incarnate as the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, for John, the central dramatic through-line of the whole story is that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the divine Logos made flesh, was in the world, yet the world did not know him. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And yet, as John tells it, that light goes largely unnoticed. 
the whole gospel then is in many ways a story about not seeing, not realizing what's actually going on. And as the story unfolds, so does this basic theme. The authorities, the crowds, even the disciples, they interact with Jesus, but they don't see. They don't realize. They're oblivious to what's right there in front of them. Take John's story of Jesus and the man born blind. Jesus and his entourage come across this man in their travels, and what the disciples see is someone suffering the consequences of sin. They ask Jesus, So, this man, is he blind because of his parents' sin or his own? This is a controversy from within the Bible's library. Some ancient texts, like the book of Exodus, speak of sin's punishments carrying down through generations, while others, like the book of Ezekiel, explicitly oppose this idea. And so the disciples are effectively asking Jesus to weigh in on this controversy inside Scripture's sacred library. Will Jesus side with Exodus or Ezekiel? Well, his response is to reject both options. Indeed, to reject the whole premise, the whole idea that the man's blindness has anything to do with sin at all. Think of it another way, he says, not as a result of some sin in the past, but rather as an occasion for doing God's works in the present and in the future. And what is God's work in this case? We might be tempted to think it's the physical restoration of the man's sight, but what Jesus is up to here is much broader and deeper than that. First, he kneels down and makes mud with spit and dirt, a clear poetic evocation of God's creative work in the beginning, making humanity out of mud, and in that sense an echo of John's cosmic prologue, in the beginning. And second, Jesus sends the man to wash in the nearby pool called Siloam, which means scent, a clear poetic evocation of baptism, and specifically how baptism is a form of commissioning, of sending. In other words, what Jesus is doing is creatively calling this person to be an apostle, from the Greek apostolos, person sent forth. Better yet, Jesus is anointing the man as an apostle, not with precious oil, but with spit, dirt, and municipal water. What's really going on here, then, is that Jesus is recruiting a new apostle from the ranks of the excluded and disinherited. His disciples don't see it. As their initial question reveals, they regard the man not as a potential colleague, but rather as a pauper suffering sin's consequences. The religious authorities don't see it either. They instantly get bogged down in questions of whether or not Jesus has violated the Sabbath by healing the man, or whether or not the healing is real or counterfeit. In short, in the story, the one who was blind now sees, and the ones who supposedly can see now show how oblivious they really are. And just in case we missed it, John sums up the episode with these words from Jesus. I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Jesus' actions 
provoke supposed insiders to demonstrate their obliviousness, even as an outsider, the excluded, disinherited man, upstages them as the one who sees, understands, and acts accordingly. In this way, everything comes full circle in perfect irony. The story begins with a question about an outsider's blindness as a supposed sign of sin in the past, and ends with Jesus' indictment of insiders as the ones whose sin is hindering their vision in the present. In his poem, Remembering That It Happened Once, Wendell Berry explores another Christmas story and the idea of restoring spiritual sight, countering our tendency to overlook God's grace, even when it's right there in front of us, dwelling among us, woven into daily life. Our tendency to forget, as Berry puts it, that we ourselves are living in the world it happened in when it first happened. That we ourselves, opening a stall, a latch thrown open countless times before, might find them breathing there, foreknown. The child bedded in straw, the mother kneeling over him, the husband standing in belief he scarcely can believe, in light that lights them from no source we can see, an April morning's light, the air around them joyful as a choir. We stand with one hand on the door, looking into another world that is this world. The pale daylight coming just as before, our chores to do, the cattle all awake, our own white frozen breath hanging in front of us. And we are here as we have never been before, sighted as not before, our place holy, although we knew it not. One of Henri Matisse's central ideas was that painting should be decorative, a word that comes from the Latin words decorare, or to make beautiful, and decor, or beauty, grace. As he came into his own as a painter, Matisse painted iconic, distilled versions of reality, like visual poems, many of them strikingly flat, with obvious brushstrokes, surprising colors, unusual arrangements, and a dreamlike atmosphere. The previous generation of artists typically used perspective to create an illusion of depth as though a painting is a kind of window through which we can look into another time and another place, almost as a momentary escape, imaginatively going somewhere else. But Matisse went the other way, a painting not as a portal to somewhere else, but a presence right here with us in the room. For Matisse, the primary purpose of art is to beautify, to decorate the spaces we live in, and so to bring some grace into our everyday lives. Matisse and the other artists of his day who shared similar passions didn't invent these ideas. They were inspired by art from other cultures and time periods, 
Think of Byzantine art, for example, or Eastern Orthodox iconography, or Islamic geometric designs, or Moroccan textiles, or Persian rugs. Matisse was influenced by them all. The textiles and the rugs are especially illustrative. These are works of art designed to surround us, to immerse us in beautiful patterns, in decor. For example, consider Matisse's painting The Red Studio, a portrait of his workspace, including many of his paintings and sculptures, all enveloped in a surprising, vibrant red, everything red, creating a flat, dreamlike, poetic sense of space. Or again, woman in a purple coat, featuring a woman sitting on a couch immersed in decorative patterns. Her coat, the couch, the pillows, the walls. These paintings portray the world as drenched in decor, in beauty and grace. They give us eyes to see the patterns of feeling and thinking and beauty, the logos, we might say, all around us, in us, and through us. In John's story of Jesus and the man born blind, at the outset, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Okay, but what does that mean? Well, light isn't only something we see, it's also the thing that makes it possible to see everything else, right? Light makes the world visible, beautiful, colorful. In other words, Jesus is saying that by learning from him and walking with him, we can see the world more clearly, more vibrantly. And this also means that Jesus, in effect, is everywhere, just as light is everywhere, in our hearts, in our neighborhoods, as distant as the farthest star and as near as our own hand. And so we don't follow Jesus as though he's over there and we're over here and we're trying to walk in his footsteps. Rather, it's more like fish swimming in water. For John, Jesus is the Logos all around us and within us, lighting up the world so that we can see and live, immersed in decor, the cosmic pattern of beauty and grace. And so the question is, do we have eyes to see? Will we be like the disciples and get bogged down in questions of whose sin is to blame? Or like the authorities and get bogged down in divisive controversies? Or will we instead, as Jesus urges us, frame difficulties and restorations and everything else as opportunities, opportunities, opportunities to participate in God's works? That's always the question in this situation, good or bad, awesome or awful, how can I take part, with the Spirit's help, in God's works of love and justice, beauty and joy? The disciples? They're too busy pointing fingers. Is it the previous generation's sin or this man's sin? Uh, who should we point at, right? The authorities, well, they're pointing fingers too, enforcing rules and protecting power. If we point fingers, 
we'll miss the point. The point of this story, for starters, which is about how Jesus calls someone on the margins of power and prestige to the role of an apostle, and about how that person, the supposed outsider, understands what's going on, while the insiders are oblivious. They just don't see. And here, precisely here, is the trap. It's what still haunts me about that painting in Salem, Massachusetts. There it is, right, in a single image on that storefront window, a powerful critique of the scapegoater, the the accuser with his green finger. And the critique has its place. But the trap is, if I stand there on the sidewalk looking at that storefront window and point at him as the evil in our midst, well, the risk is that my pointing finger will be just as green then I'm the one who can't see. In other words, as we critique those we believe to be judgmental, we must take good care not to fall into judgmentalism. It's the same in John's story. Will we stand aside with haughty contempt and point at the disciples and point at the authorities, shaking our heads at their haughty contempt? If we do, then who's oblivious now? In this way, the story pushes us in two directions, which are really one. First, toward humility. To be alert to scapegoating, yes, and to stand against it, but not in a way that itself is a form of scapegoating. And second, the story thereby pushes us to focus on restoration. Not recrimination, not contempt, but restoration. Ushering outsiders in. And by the same token, helping insiders to see, to make room, creating a world together, in other words. Not of pointing fingers and clenched fists, but of open human hands, receiving and giving to see together the opportunities for restoration we stumble upon every day, to see together that this is the world it happened in when it first happened, to see together that Jesus is everywhere, then and now, the logos, the decor, all around us, the beauty and grace in which we live and move and have our being. And if we do, if we have eyes to see with true sight and insight, even in our most mundane routines, our chores to do, then we'll be here as we have never been before, sighted as not before, our place holy, although we knew it not. Jesus, Wendell, and Henri 
is a mini-series by Strange New World, a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Pablo J. Garman, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. And if you'd like to go deeper, SALT has devotionals for Lent based on the work of Wendell Berry and Henri Matisse, which include more details, activities, links to the paintings, and more. You can find them both in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.